Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 69 with two David Fu. Yeah, growing up in Oakland and being Vietnamese American in Oakland, especially in the 80s and the 90s, I, I think the access to Asian food and Asian ingredients, specifically Vietnamese, was very, very seldom. Um, and then even if you were able to, I feel like the quality was subpar. And I think to be more specific, the region that my parents are from, when people think of Vietnamese food, it, it's, it's very general. They think banh mi, pho. My parents are from an island, and they were pescatarians up until they immigrated over here. So the cuisine that we ate and the food ingredients that we were accustomed to, we couldn't get access to those ingredients here. So everything that I ate that I thought was Vietnamese in my youth was actually my mother's improvisation of what she knew as cuisine all throughout my youth because maybe, number one, we didn't have enough money. Or number two, she cooked in Thailand and she brought a recipe with her. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. This is Chris Spear, your host of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, this is a podcast that has grown out of my organization of the same name. I myself am a personal chef and have a business called Perfect Little Bites, which I started about 10 years ago. I wanted to form a community of like-minded food entrepreneurs and people doing interesting things in the food business that aren't necessarily working as cooks and chefs in a restaurant. On the podcast, we speak to some of those people who are doing some of those interesting and different things. On this week's show, I have Chef Tu David Fu. Tu is a first-generation Vietnamese-American born and raised in Oakland, California. You might know him from season 15 of the Bravo TV show Top Chef. He's also a San Francisco Chronicle rising star chef. Tu uses the medium of food as a vessel for meaningful work, like cooking with incarcerated men in San Quentin Prison and being a community ambassador in Oakland, working with Asian Health Services and the Oakland Asian Cultural Center. We discuss his upbringing and what life was like for his family coming to the United States after enduring two wars. Two dealt with food insecurity, struggled with identity, and experienced some confusion around the foods that he ate growing up. We talk about Vietnamese restaurants, the Michelin system, how he got into cooking professionally, and we touch on his experience on Top Chef. You can find cooking tutorials on his website, chef2.com, and he's also started an e-commerce shop called Tumami Spices, where you can order kimchi, pho kits, Asian snacks, spice blends, and more. I hope you enjoy the show, and I'd love your feedback. So please share any comments you have, and you can go and I would appreciate it if you liked and reviewed the show if you're an iTunes user. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. Welcome, everyone. This is Chris Spear with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Today, I have Chef Tu David Fu. Tu is a first-generation Vietnamese-American born and raised in Oakland, California. He was on season 15 of the Bravo TV show Top Chef and is a San Francisco Chronicle rising star chef. His extensive resume reflects a wide range of experiences, including being a chef ambassador for Whole Foods Market and a food TV host. Welcome to the show, Tu. Hey, thanks, Chris. Super excited to be on here. Thank you for having me, man. You're welcome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. This is exciting. Absolutely. Um, any opportunity where I get to tell my story and connect with another chef, I think 
um, there's this understanding and kinship that we have with one another because we're chefs, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, as a personal chef myself, I don't work in a traditional restaurant setting. And all of our guests, you know, I'm really trying to share the stories of these people doing interesting things that don't pertain to restaurant cooking. I mean, you've done restaurant cooking, but now you're kind of doing your own thing as many of us are. So I'm always interested in kind of the path that people take to get there, the, the hows and whys, and find out a little bit about them. Absolutely. And I, I think that's great because I think so far, probably you'll find out not just from me, but from the other people that you spoke to um, or the people that you interviewed and no one's path is linear, right? It'd be so ideal that if it's linear, you do this, you do this and this happens, but. Yeah. And um, things, things change all the time. Like chefs without restaurants. I've said a number of times I thought it was going to be like, like a little club of four people that I knew, like we could just gig share and talk about yeah. like how to become personal chefs. And it blew up to over like 200 members within a week of, of announcing it. And that was crazy. <laughs> like I have a podcast with like thousands of members, like across all platforms worldwide. It's like, I still don't know what I'm doing. People are like, what's chefs without restaurants? I'm like, I don't know. We're kind of like a community. Like it's free join, join and you know, we'll help each other. I think you should find pride in the fact that you don't have to, nor have a need to explain to people on what it is. Cause I think at the end of the day, for people who get it, they get it. And it, it reflects in the thousands of members that you have on all your different platforms. Right. So yeah. it's, it's like the chef thing. It's like, if you're a chef, you know, you get it. You know, <laughs> I think, I think you're speaking, I think you're creating, you're, you're creating a space for a culture of people who, probably before didn't have a space to talk about that stuff. So that's why I signed on to this is that, you know, I think it's very unique and, you know, I think conversations that happen here won't exist anywhere else. So good for you. Yeah. And I think so many of us are entrepreneurs. You don't have to be an entrepreneur. I mean, we have people who, you know, work in contract food or they're R and D chefs or something like that. But the, the whole idea being so many of us do have our own businesses and we're not naturally business people, right? Like you maybe go to school, for culinary arts and you've only worked in restaurants or something, and then you want to start a food truck or a catering business. Like what's your experience on that? And like, once you go out and do it, who do you have to lean on and say like, Hey, how do you, how do you do this? Like we were just talking off air before this. And you said, um, Oh, I create a Google form for that. Like, that's a great idea. Those are the kind of things you have these conversations with people and they can maybe see something that you don't and, and provide some tips where you're not going to get that talking to necessarily like a chef who's working in a restaurant because they have totally different experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'd love to start talking about your upbringing a bit. I know your parents came over from Vietnam in the 70s. What was your childhood like and, and your upbringing? So uh, my parents are from, specifically my parents are from an island called Phu Quoc Island. It's the southernmost tip of Vietnam. And um, on that island, they experienced not one, but two wars. So Vietnamese American war, and then the uh, Cambodian Vietnam war, which was against the Khmer Rouge. Um, So I think uh, just starting off the conversation with the understanding that they experienced tremendous uh, amounts of PTSD, um, landed in Thailand in a refugee camp for a year, got sponsored over, and then ended in Oakland in a underserved community. So I think for me growing up, it was, uh, you know, I had a good childhood, but I wasn't as privileged or um, had the benefits of what most youth would have here in the United States. You know, I basically just to kind of cut straight to the point, I grew up hungry, I was poor. Um, But I think the beauty in all that was that I didn't realize that I was poor until much, much later. (laughs) 
I think if anything, there's a, there's a beauty and genius to the way my parents raised me was that I didn't feel poor um, in my youth. And I think they did that through food in some sorts, you know? And I think that's why I have this weird obsession with food. And they had pretty working class jobs when they came over here, didn't they? Absolutely. Um, they came over and they were janitors at the Fox Theater in Oakland. And one odd job left to the, led to the other, but eventually or essentially they became, uh, my mother became a lifelong seamstress, now retired, and retired as a seamstress as well too. My dad was a lifelong, a career-long fishmonger, um, and he's retired as well too. I think fishmonger sounds a lot prettier than it actually is, but fishmonger work is extremely, extremely laborious and demanding on your body. He works night shifts, works in a cold refrigerator, and oftentimes, not to put anybody out there, but he worked under the table and got paid cash, you know? Um, so just kind of wrap things up and keep it fairly straightforward as I, I feel like I come from fairly humble beginnings. Um, but I think that's what translates into my work ethic and uh, my understanding of the world and people and, you know, navigating to where I, it's navigated me to where I am today as of 2020, so. What was food like in your house growing up? Were you eating traditional Vietnamese food? Could you even find those ingredients at the time? Because now it seems Bro, like you can, great you, you, know, you, can, you can get uh, fish sauce at every grocery store now, but I can't imagine what it was like growing up back then. That's a great question, Chris. Um, yeah, growing up in Oakland and being Vietnamese American in Oakland, um, especially in the 80s and the 90s, I, I think the access to Asian food and Asian ingredients, specifically Vietnamese, was very, very seldom. Um, and then even if you were able to, I feel like the quality was subpar. And I think to be more specific, the region that my parents are from, when people think of Vietnamese food, it, it's, it's very general. They think banh mi and pho. My parents are from an island and they were pescatarians up until they immigrated over here. So the cuisine that we ate and the food ingredients that we were accustomed to, we couldn't get access to those ingredients here. So everything that I ate that I thought was Vietnamese in my youth was actually my mother's improvisation of what she knew as cuisine all throughout my youth because maybe number one, we didn't have enough money or number two, she cooked in Thailand and she brought a recipe with her. Or another interesting one was that we had a, a woman of Korean descent that was a neighbor of ours, but spoke fluent Vietnamese because she was born in Vietnam, but her family was of Korean origin. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So, so growing up, I thought she was Vietnamese, but she taught my mom a bunch of Korean dishes. So for years, all the way up until like my late teens, I was eating Korean dishes thinking that it was Vietnamese. You know? Oh, that's like, interesting. <laughs> isn't that crazy? Like, yeah. Um, things, things as universal as anchovies, you know, like everything that I thought associated with an anchovy that was Asian, for me, stemmed back to being Vietnamese because of fish sauce. And I think an adolescent or a young teen, that's, that's a... That's a totally reasonable assumption, correct? Yeah. So there's a there's this Korean dish where they serve, it's a pan-fried crispy anchovies, and they, they spike it with jalapeno, and you eat it with rice. For years, I thought it was Vietnamese, you know? And it's, it's just, it put me in a conundrum in a sense where going into high school, right out of high school, going into culinary school, learning about other people's cuisines, and then... 10 years later, I pivoted back and wanted to eat Vietnamese food. I went down this whole rabbit hole of what identity, culture, and what, what Vietnamese, what authentic Vietnamese food was. And 
the things that I cooked is very, very different. Or the things that I ate in my household is very, very different. And what you see on Instagram or even what Anthony Bourdain, God rest his soul, um, showed on his show. Because like any other country in the world, it's, it's impossible to generalize or summarize a region's cuisine. Like let's use Italy, for example. Italy has so many, so many communities and districts and, and, and different geographies from desert, mountain, ocean, coastal, all that stuff. You know, so someone from Venice and someone from Sicily will absolutely eat different food, completely different, right? Um, even their accents will be completely different, you know? Um, and I started to come into that understanding once I started cooking Vietnamese food. So to kind of like repeat my answer in a short format, uh, it was fairly... I was fairly confused as a kid eating Vietnamese food and eating food in my household. <laughs> is there a big Vietnamese community in Oakland? There is a, a pretty, I say a pretty substantial Vietnamese community here in Oakland, big enough to have a, their own established community. In East Oakland, we have a, a little Saigon the same way LA or Orange County has a little Saigon, you know? And I think San Jose absolutely uh, stumps our uh, Vietnamese community, I think by double mm. or something like that. Yeah. I hadn't so, really experienced it till we lived in Seattle, like early to 2001, 2002. And that was the first time I really, I had ever been to a Vietnamese restaurant. Like I grew up outside of Boston. Uh, we didn't really have a big community there. So I had never even had Vietnamese food until like 2001 when I moved to Seattle. But you know, something that strikes me, and I'm sure this is something you may be experienced. So my hometown was a fairly it was an almost all white suburban uh, city in Massachusetts. And I remember there being a Vietnamese restaurant and like yeah. my dad was kind of racist. Like I've, I've told people like, but we were not allowed to go there. Like there was this holdover about the whole, you know, Vietnamese American yeah. war. And like, we were not going to support these people who owned a shop. And I can't imagine how hard that was from them. Cause I know my dad was not the exception. He was probably the rule in that town. And I can't imagine yeah. them coming here trying to, make their own, open up a restaurant, just these people like not eat there because of a war that had occurred like 20, 30 years ago. But I never got to eat there and I kind of wish I did because it's some of my favorite food. I appreciate that you said that. There's this um, recent independent film that I watched that made me shed a tear about um, US American soldiers and veterans and whatnot and you know um, Vietnamese immigrants. Whatnot. It's called Sea Drift. It's about the conflict between the Vietnamese immigrants that were taking up a small coastal town in Texas and dispute between them and other generation long white um, fishermen. And they were both competing, combating for fishing territory along the coast. And I think both men were war veterans, one of them Vietnamese, the other American. However, both were democratic, you know, they were both fighting for pro-democracy but they had a debacle amongst each other and they were fighting each other this whole time. And after a few arguments and conflict, a few people got seriously hurt. Another person died and it took someone's death for that war veteran man to understand was that these people who are coming over are not the people we were fighting in Vietnam. They were the people we were trying to save, you know, and I know, our country is amongst extremely difficult times at the moment. And no matter what, I think presidential candidates are one thing, policies and politics are another. 
but I really believe, I really, really believe in democracy. And I feel like if you put the right people in that system, I think democracy will prevail. You know, my, my family and my history of being Vietnamese and Vietnamese American, like we've suffered at the hand of the Vietnamese government, um, which I tr I'll try not to get into too much detail. And I feel that our opportunities here in the United States, we've, we've been very, very blessed, you know. And I think, and I'm not trying to demonize people or certain cultures, but I do believe that there are certain individuals in the world that that are born just evil, you know. Yeah. And I think it's things like democracy, whether it's in the United States or fucking Sweden or whatever other country that's practicing democracy, uh, hopefully in the right ways, or even France or whatever. I feel like democracy prevents that, you know. Yeah. Um, no, definitely. We don't we don't live in a pretty world. I think people forget that. You know? Did you ever feel? Uh, I don't want to say ashamed, but like embarrassed of your culture. Like I know there's a lot of people who come over from other countries and even first generation um, who try, try to Americanize themselves. Like my wife has a friend whose family came over and, you know, my wife talks about her friend changing his name to an American name because, you know, whatever was just easier to go by his American name than his Vietnamese name. Yeah. Like, did you ever go through yeah. anything like that? Um, I don't know if I had a self shame. Uh, so first I'm very proud to be Vietnamese. I'm very proud to be American. Um, I think all those come with growing pains, no matter what generation or decades you come with, you know, and I, I think in my youth, I did have a, I don't know if it's a self-shame, but um, I did have a, a struggle with identity in a sense where I didn't know my own culture. I didn't know my own history. Mind you that my parents had PTSD, so they didn't tell me anything about Vietnam or the or, or, or history of the war. All I knew was that you know, they tried to assimilate in a sense where they said, be, if you'd be more American, that would be more ideal for you. Because um, just to give you more detail, my dad is half Khmer, uh, meaning that's half Cambodian. And during the Khmer Rouge war and era in this late 70s, early 80s, found out that he was Cambodian, they would kill him. It's kind of also in relation to the Nazis because it was genocide, right? You know, for and I and I've had this conversation with older Jewish people who experienced Nazis and whatnot. Was that the trauma that instills into someone where they have to hide who they are in fear of death? You know. Yeah, I can't imagine. So I feel like that's what that's where my parents were coming from, um, and I think for me, I, I was always naturally curious, and I always wanted to wonder why. You know, and I I had a American name, but I always embraced my Vietnamese name ever since I was little because um, the region that we're from, we didn't look like everyone else, every other Vietnamese, Vietnamese immigrant or Vietnamese American here in California. Uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm a big guy. I'm like 220, 6263. That's pretty big. <laughs> and I've always been a big kid, you know, like I, so I was never just physically. And on a, on a very judging sort of general scale, if someone saw me on the street, it's it's very seldom that they would, even if they were Vietnamese, it's very seldom they would associate me with being Vietnamese. I was always mistaken for something else, like Hawaiian or Filipino or something, or whatever that's not Vietnamese, you know? It's all the hormones and the, the American food and milk, right? Well, my dad's a big guy too. He's, because we're Islanders. We're from an island, we're Islanders. That's, that's both patriarch and matriarch. So the structure and build from both families. My mom 
all the men were skinny and tall. Um, and then my dad's side, everyone was thick, like they looked like Hawaiians. Um, and, I, and I think it goes, not just the diet here, but it goes back generation because we ate a very high protein ocean diet, you know? Um, my dad, for an Asian man, I mean, he's in his mid 60s now. So and as you get older, you shrink a little bit, but I think he's like 5'10", you know? That's, and he's what, 200, right now he's like 260. <laughs> wow. He's a big dude, yeah. So I think that's the thing is that I think more so in what we think of our of everyone has some sort of prejudice, but it, I think it's the effort to correct them, right? But I think our prejudices around um, people of origin in terms of like skin color and and continental continental link like Asia, Africa, and all that stuff. I think a lot of it's incorrect, um, and I think more so. I think you said it was that. I think people's sizes are more reflective on their diets, you know, what they eat. Like there's no way to be big and strong if, you, if you've been malnourished generationally, right? It just doesn't make any sense, right? Not at all. So how did you get into food and cooking? Is, is it something that you just decided, like at what point did you think, oh, I want to go and become a chef? You know, I, I think I spoke early in the beginning that I have this very strange relationship with food. I think mainly in part or mainly because I grew up very hungry. I think I've always loved food and I think in the environment that I grew up in, you know, just to kind of shoot straight to the point, was I don't feel like there's a lot of celebratory moments. I don't, I don't think there was a lot of joyish moment, joyish moments in my childhood. Um, and I, I, you know, the memories of food that I do have are, you know, you know, the meal that I imagine or that I, that, that I recall in terms of my youth, other people would say, I remember my mom would make my birthday cake or, you know, we would have a 10 foot tray of lasagna or turkey dinners. I didn't have those sort of memories as a kid, you know? I mean, there were moments where, you know, we would go to other people's houses and there'd be a grand feast or every few times a year where we have like a lot of food. But I think for the most part, there's this one meal that I always remember is that my mom would get chicken bones from a butcher shop. Because back in those days, butcher shops would throw away chicken bones like nothing. And they would leave it out for people to take home and get soup. They never charged for chicken bones back in the day. Um, so my mom would just go to the mart or go to the shop, butcher shop or wherever, had a butcher counter and get those chicken bones and go home and make a soup out of it. You know, that's like, mm-hmm. that's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory cabbage soup sort of stuff. You know? <laughs> You know, and we had that with rice. That that was my constant meal as a kid. And I remember growing up very, very hungry. And mint, when you start to grow, it's like an invasive species, right? It grows everywhere. Oh, yeah, we had so to pull was, ours out, yeah. <laughs> so it was that in mint. And the thing I love about mint was that it was the one thing that I got as a whole ingredient that was, like, fresh and vibrant. So I think coming from that sort of history, I wanted to cook and nourish myself and experiment at home because now I have the power to contribute and, you know, do something if my stomach's hurting or growling, right? And then naturally coming out of high school, I decided to be a chef. You know, other people's like Christmas presents under the tree. For me, it was like eating food, you know? And, you know, like, I I don't know if some people would consider that an eating disorder in any sense, but I don't think it ever got to that extreme. But I think that obsession was... Um, is what got me here to where I am today is loving food and it's all aspects and not just consuming the history, the technique and learning about it and, and furthering it in my career, all that stuff. So 
Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like to to go hungry. Um, I had a foster sister growing up, and she moved in with us when she was, I think, like fifteen. And the and you know what, God, God, hey, God bless your parents, man. That's that's God's work, absolutely God's work. I was like nine, and they decided they wanted to bring someone in. But you know, she had lived in a, a group home for a while. But one of the things, like my mom would go grocery shopping, and she would take like a sharpie and write like her name on things, like earmarking things, or she would like open a carton of milk and like drink a swig so that no one else wanted. And it's like yeah. it took so long to to get through to her. Like, no, no, like you're not going to go hungry. Like this milk is for everyone. You don't need to take a swig out of it and put a marker on it. Like you don't need to claim it when we're out of milk. We're going to go to the store and get more. Yeah. And that was like the first kind of glimpse into that kind of thing that I, I saw. And I remember being like nine years old, you know, and you'd go and it's like, why is there a hot dog with like a bite taken out of it in the fridge? But that was like her way of claiming food so yeah. that no one yeah. else would eat that. And it was really sad to kind of see that. So, you yeah. know, that kind of resonated with me. Yeah, and I think that's the one of the little beautiful thing about the institutions that exist in the United States is that, you know, there's food banks, you know, um, there's the library, like stuff like that wouldn't happen. Uh, I don't think there's those types of resources in other countries, you know, and the best chef, like, I think those are the things that drive me the most, you know what I mean, is that it's those types of stories and the magic you and I make on a plate, we, we have that power to with our resources, not just change somebody's mood, but makes a small difference in, in a person, in a day, in a meal, in many meals, whatever it is. You know what I mean? I think that's the beautiful part about food. Yeah. I mean, most of the, the events I do now, they're all special events. I've done two weddings this week, you know, and to be able to be, a part, of, you know, to be able to part of someone's life, which is really weird for me because I only do small events. Like I max out at 20 and now all these people are having these, you know, we're talking about the word micro weddings, but yeah. I did a, a wedding reception for 11 and a wedding reception for 10, which is crazy. So now I'm doing weddings and that's not something I've ever really done, but to, awesome. <laughs> for forever to be linked in these people's story of, you know, but I really, I love that feeling because you're seeing these groups, they're so much more connected. Like I remember, you know, even my wedding, which wasn't crazy, but like you have all these people there and you're being pulled to all these conversations and you're not really connecting. But now with COVID, people are having small parties and it's just really the most important people in your life. It's like a dozen people just coming together around a table, having some food, they're DJing the thing themselves and having like an amazing time. And I kind of hope there's you know, some of that sticks around that people readjust their priorities and, and don't go back to spending $50,000 on, you know, one huge wedding reception. Although I'm sure caterers don't want to hear that, but you know. <laughs> I think it is because they opened a new door for that. I don't think it's ever going to go away once, once the door is open for that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I think I really appreciate, um, like you said, the, the power that food has. You know, I, I think just through the power of food alone, it, it took me into San Quentin. Um, which is a penitentiary here in California. Um, and it, it took me there to be a volunteer to work with incarcerated men to kind of heal them through food. And I've, I've worked with, you know, Slauson Ave, Los Angeles Crips, Aryan Brotherhood individuals, you know, and they're obviously they've been re rehabilitated, but them cooking along other people who don't look like them in that sort of space, I think, I think that was. I continually feel blessed that I was part of something like that, that provided healing, you know? So why that, like, why them? What, what made you decide you wanted to go work with them in particular? 
growing up in Oakland, um, my experiences mirrored a lot of my peers' experiences in terms of like our youth and what we've went through and what we've been through and all that stuff. However, their lives went a different route. And I felt that my what I was in some magical universal blessing or whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, I was able to stay on my path. And it, it really bothered me because I, I couldn't understand why. And I think the sort of the explanation, um, the default explanation for most would be like, I did better, I'm stronger, I'm better. I thought that was complete bullshit, you know? And it really disturbed me as I got older and going into my adulthood, those same peers, a lot of them have already passed away. You know, they, they, were, either mur- they were either murdered or they were result, uh, they were, they were either a victim of a murder or they were somehow caught in like some sort of weird debacle that, that involves some sort of like freak, freaky violence, you know? And I think that always stuck with me. And, um, you know, you, whether you're a kid from Oakland or a kid from Boston, Massachusetts, at the end of the day, when you're a baby, you're a child, that innocence starts with everybody everyone's the same in their youth so i know these individuals of who they are in their youth you know and who who they really are before they were scorned and that i think that always bothered me and i think that's what took me into prison was that you know i in, in some sort of essence i was never able to save my friends but if if i can put into some work to help changing the life of one individual in my time there i thought that for me, that that idea was at least somewhat fulfilling for me, you know. Well, it seems like you're very involved in your community, not just with that. So, what is what does community mean to you, and being part of a community and helping out in your community? You know, I, I think as of 2020, you know, before I thought my community was just Oakland and in the places that I existed in, and then, and then as my career bloomed. You know, I think other people from other communities around the nation and wherever else would reach out to me and be like, hey, I'm inspired by you and X, Y, Z, you do this. And, you know, so I think from there and as I connected with other chefs around the nation and in Vietnam or whatever, my, my network expanded. And I felt that it would be selfish for me to be like, I'm trying to just take care of people from where I'm from and I'm ignoring the issue in other places. So I think as of 2020, my, my definition of community has expanded. I, I think it's, it's, for me, it's community means there's an effort to care for each other, you know? And if there's other people who wants, who wants to go into that space and like be ethical and heal and, and move forward and be righteous and be righteous in both the non-religious and the religious sense, whatever it is, being ethical as a person, having human compassion. I, I would say when I use the term community, that's, that's what I'm welcoming in. So that's what that means to me. I think in terms of the extent of it, I think the farthest that I could go is within my network, within my resources, you know? Um, <laughs> I know, a complicated answer. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah, it, it's really great because not everyone gets involved in, in a community at all. I think it's really easy to get kind of self-absorbed in everything that you're doing and just go about and, and your community is essentially like your family and your neighborhood. I think it it takes a concerted effort to say, no, I'm going to donate time or 
resources or whatever it is to people within some kind of community, whether that be locally or globally, which, you know, you can do some stuff online. So I think it's great to be able to, to be active in your communities. Yeah. And it's, it's and like I said, if there's any restrictions for me, it's, it's a resource thing. You know what I mean? Where, uh, you know, whether I don't have the energy or the capacity or even the connection to so. But I think I think that's the blessing of the, the digital age, if you will, and all the virtual stuff is that, you know, whatever efforts you're doing right now could be, if done right, could be echoed out further than than your city walls and borders, right? So Yeah, most definitely as someone who's built a community online, like that's you know, what I'm doing with Chefs About Restaurants isn't necessarily like like helping people in need, but I've built a community that lives in the internet, you know, and I can connect with people locally via that but you can do the same with you know whatever organization you're trying to work with to help absolutely um i'm I'm super proud to say that um that i am a community advisor for a nonprofit organization in oakland chinatown called oakland asian cultural center and um, in my youth they were a safe space for me to go to for after school for after school activities and all that stuff you know Um, a place where i could learn more about myself so it's and I'm, I'm super proud to say that that I've gotten to a place in my career where I can creatively find ways to, to help out and give back. So and I think that's important, too, is that eliminating this, this sort of rapper notion. You know how rappers say I'm self-made? I think it's complete bullcrap. <laughs> yeah. So, so who helped you if you're not self-made? Like, who do you say gave you a, a foot up? This is the power of mentorship. Every single one of my employers that patted me on the back when I was young and said I did a good job, everyone that took time out, teachers as well, coaches as well, said that if you apply yourself, whether it's in this or something else, that something good's going to come out of it. Because I, I have to tell you, just continuous examination of my own personal life, it just, as the more I start to understand that all these other people in my life were just as important in addition to my parents, I start to understand that that saying is absolutely true, is that it really takes a village to raise a child. Absolutely does. You know, I I find the most healthiest individuals um, that I look up to, that I aspire to be more like, uh, the people who's gotten to the heights that I, I wish that I would get to, both the ones that I know personally and the ones that I don't know, I always hear and see these stories of like, beyond their parents, but how certain, how communities or certain key aspects of people in communities have empowered them and, 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 and helped molded them to become the person that they are today. And, and I guarantee you, like every person on the face of this earth where they're in a good place can say absolutely the same, you know? And I, I think, um, you know, just speaking on the topics of parents as well too, there's, I think with parents or even teachers or coaches or whatever, I think that the notion that people have ideal parents, ideal communities, ideal settings, I think you could learn how not to be from the wrong environments as well too. Uh, but it takes, I think sometimes it takes the individual to realize that in some magical shape or form, you know, maybe being introduced by somebody else through self-education, through reading, whatever it is, you know. It's hard to break out of those molds, you know, because so much is learned behavior and environmental, you know, like I had referenced before, like my dad had a very 
racist kind of worldview on things, it would be very easy for me to adopt those kind of feelings and beliefs. You know, I was raised in a Republican household. And when I turned 18, I registered as Republican and I voted that way just because like, that's what you did. That's what I like. I didn't even know what that meant. You know, I didn't know anything about the candidates. And it's very easy to, to be 40 years old and still having the beliefs that your parents had and, and doing all that stuff. And I think at some point, you know, it's hard. I don't even know. I guess maybe going away to college and living on my own is where I kind of figured out who I was. But what if you're not that person? What if you live at home until you're 20 and then move off like, and you don't develop any thoughts of your own, you know? So it could be very easy to just perpetuate that cycle. That's, that's, that, that's a great point. But I think in moments like this, this is where I reference history. I think self-education is extremely powerful. And I think in this era, I don't think people take it as seriously as they did back then. You know, the great, the great dictators of history, what's the first thing that they did or what's the first thing that they attacked when they took over a country or a nation? Education, they would go, books, they would burn, learning. Yep, that's right. They would burn all the education institutions down. They burn all the books. They would take your thoughts away. They would take your opinions away. They would forbid your opinions. I think that's the key thing is that if you're able to self-educate or introduce education to an individual, I think that's the most powerful thing. I think if our school systems and school structures were stronger, I feel like a lot of our society's issues would go away. Not go away, but like um, it would it would be more preventative, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're focusing, in my opinion, on a lot of the wrong things, you know, not to slam the education system. I have children who are in elementary school right now and you see some of the things they're learning. Like you, sometimes it's like your, your eyes are on the wrong prize, right? Like you're teaching them these things to be like factory workers or, or whatever, you know, the, the education I, I model yep. and mm-hmm. you're not teaching them. Like, I, I think you should be learning more soft skills and maybe that's a, a parent's, you know, job, but like just having them be super competitive in math and science, I don't think is going to make the kind of person that we need to have in the world, you know? Absolutely. Not a balanced education from what I'm seeing. Absolutely. I agree a thousand percent, you know? And I think, I think there should be more emphasis on history as well too. Cause I feel like history, you can only learn so much, but there's, I feel like there's a lot more to the world in terms of like understanding and the more one's understands about the world, the more you can understand about yourself, the more you can understand about yourself, the more you can gear yourself forward in the right direction. You know, I'm a big, big history fan. I'm a big English fan, you know, in terms of like grammar. Um, I didn't go to college. You know, I had to learn all this after the fact, you know, sort of like a, a, an alternative way, if you will. I'm super passionate about public speaking too. I think speaking correctly, speaking in front of audience, speaking to lead a team, those are absolutely extremely powerful assets that I feel in my education, I don't know about now, was absolutely undervalued, you know? Yeah, I'm appreciative. When I was in college, um, I have a bachelor's degree in culinary arts, but for the last two years, you have to take a public speaking class. You have to take a business ethics class. You take all these things. And I remember so many of the students being so upset about that. You know, like, I'm here to be a chef. Why the hell am I taking public speaking? It's like, well, if you want to move up the ranks, like eventually you're going to need to be able to communicate effectively with your teams. And business ethics makes sense. Like who wants a shady businessman, you know? I think more, more restaurateurs probably should have taken a business ethics class. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man.
So you went through some really well-known Michelin-starred restaurants. When did you decide that that wasn't the path for you, that you, you know, you enjoyed your time there, but it didn't really kind of resonate with who you were as a chef? I think for my family history and the source of cuisine for me was always matriarchal. And I think um, culinary school for me was very patriarchal. Um, And not that that's a good or a bad thing, but for me, those two styles were so different, you know? And um, in addition to that, patriarchal versus matriarchal, uh, my mom being from the region where she came from and experiences she's been through, she would tell me that bitter is good. You know, your classic French trained chef would say, eliminate as much bitter as you can. You do not want bitter, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that was where the huge conflict was there for me. And not to say that one is better than the other, but after, you know, some French training, some Michelin French training, some Michelin Italian cooking, I wanted to see what my mom was talking about. So opposed to putting in my early career, I would put European, French, American gastronomy on the pedestal. And I would belittle my mother unknowingly because I'm like, this is what I learned in culinary school, mom, blah, blah, blah. I did that too. Yeah, right? And as I got older in my career, 10 years into my career, I I wanted to balance that pedestal out. I'm like, you know what? I want to learn more about what my mom's cooking and her grassroots generation old wisdom, see how they cook. And I think I absolutely fell in love with it. And my efforts to understand how my mom cooked was, you know, my pursuit to cook authentic Vietnamese food and (laughs) <laughs> the fucked up part, the funny part about that is that in my pursuit of that, it just got more, I got more and more lost into it and away from cooking authentic Vietnamese food, which is a general term. I think more than anything, the beautiful coincidence about it was that I think learning about my mother's recipes and my family's recipes and how they cooked, it opened this Pandora's box of their experiences, you know, with war and their history. And and that for me was sort of the safe space for them, especially my mom, to open up. And I was finally able to learn about um, what they've been through and the pains and the horrors and the pleasures um, in their personal histories, which I, you know, I, I didn't... I, I, that, I wasn't out for that initially at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that was super hard for them to talk about. I, I don't think I'd want to be sharing that that often with my family. Absolutely, and, and totally understandable. And, um, just to kind of like slightly pivot and speak to my projects that I'm doing now is that a few years back, I started a food media company in efforts to kind of like keep track of these stories that, I'm, that my mom were tell- is telling. So, um, And as of early this year, um, we finished the short film, and it's going to be showing on KQED California and then public broadcast PBS National specifically, I think by February. So November, KQED, which is local here, and February, um, National PBS. I'll keep you posted. Yeah, please do, because I'll be sharing that out. Yeah, so it seems like you're doing all this stuff on your own now. You know, you've got your website, you're doing some cooking classes online. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit about your uh, spice and uh, Vietnamese ingredient company that you started too. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Well, um, I just want to be very transparent in a sense where 
I think it's my responsibility as, as a co-chef, just like yourself as well, too. But um, at the beginning of the year, you know, I had no plans to start like a spice store. <laughs> zero, you know, zero, no plans, right? Um, as March comes around, Gavin Newsom, our mayor, he issues shelter in place. Um, I'm sorry, January 2020, we have two letter of commitments from KQD PBS. You know, I'm, I'm going to film all this year. We're going to do TV shows, whatever, whatever, right? March comes around, Gavin Newsom issues shelter in place. We lose all of our funding. <laughs> wow. I have, nothing, I have nothing planned for the year. I had to clear my schedule out. I'm like, that's got to hurt. That's a dream, right? That's like, that's like you know, like every, every, every chef's dream is to like, you know, go do your TV show or whatever. Right? Be like Anthony Bourdain or whatever, right? How long had that been in the works? Um, as a company, we've been together for about three, three and a half years. So... It's a lot of investment, a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of not talk, a lot of being discreet because the things that you're working on, you don't know how they would formulate out later. There's no guarantee, you know, so you really wouldn't speak about it up until you get a, you get a deal, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just how those things play out. It's like opening a restaurant. You can spend two years opening a restaurant, but you know, there's a lot of buildup, but there's no guarantee that you're going to open on day one. But yeah, so, you know, I, I was absolutely distraught you know completely rocked um that we lost our funding and we had to like uh, we still had an opportunity but especially in march that's where our nation our world our international community in the world you know there's a lot of suffering that was happening from black lives matter to um the rioting to and just want to make it very clear there's a difference between the protests and the rioting right yeah um to the fires that happened in California. So I think, especially because here in California, we were stuck indoors, I, I wanted to do something to contribute and help the effort. So I started hosting virtual cooking classes on my website, chef2.com. And I charge 20 bucks. You can't afford 20 bucks for a class. There's an honorary discount code if you sign up for my newsletter. So it's 50% off. So you, it's 10 bucks. I'm sure anyone can afford 10 bucks for a class. Quite a bargain. Yeah. <laughs> in addition to that, 50% of those proceeds have been going to nonprofit organizations or causes. You know, everyone from fire victims to organizations to community centers. And I've been doing that ever since. And I'm, I'm super proud in the collaborations that I've hosted with other partnering brands and friends of mine where they would donation match. I think our most recent one was, uh, which I'm going to do right now, is I partnered up with Twitter and Twitter's doing a donation match. I think our goal is 5,000. I think we're like $1,000 away. Stuff like that, that adds up. Yeah. And uh, we need to give some of that that we're gaining as well, too. I think in part because um, we're in a time and place in Earth's history where we can't, you know, we can't pick and choose anymore. We have to do a little bit. We have to give a little bit. Because if we don't, there's no guarantee for next year or five years from now or 10 years from now, right? Or 50 years from now. No guarantees at all. We've learned that this year, if, if nothing else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then that sort of migrated over to um, starting an e-commerce spice store, uh, an Asian spice store. I think mainly in part because the past few years I've been doing a lot of advisory and consulting and product development work for a few organizations and, and companies like Whole Foods and in the food robotics space and kind of everything in between. And, um, and I do the fancy food show as a secret judge as well, too. That's right. You see my face. Don't, don't be mean to me. <laughs> um, but I was like a secret judge for the fancy food show, like multiple years. And, 
there's always people in the industry that brings me products and I taste it. I'm like, this stuff's amazing. And however, because they're small producers, it's hard for them to get into the retail ecosystem. And it was because of the pandemic where direct to consumer straight from producers um, became an open channel. And I wanted to be able to work with these small brands. And these are Asian producers, not just from Asia, but all over the world, domestically and internationally. And I'm just saying Asian because respectfully, those are the ingredients that I know best. You know, I, I think it'd be unfair for me to grade the quality of, you know, balsamic from yeah, Italy. Marinara sauce or something like or that. Marinara. Yeah. And, and I'm not talking about appropriation, but I would be appropriating if I pretended that I, I was an expert at it. You know what I mean? However, if I grew up in Italy and I've, you know, I, I made balsamic all my life. Absolutely. So, uh, but that's just the things that I know best. And those are the products that I get the most of. Um, I wanted to create a platform to help these products, not just promote, but connect to wholesalers and whole buyers and direct to consumer and all that stuff. And so far it's, it's been an absolutely fun project because I'm able to get these small producers products into quite a few people's hands and quite a few retail outlets. So I hate using the term like influencer because you're a chef, but like that's what an influencer is, right? Like someone who has some influence, I think with a chef having a platform where you're getting people, you can hopefully get that product to more people. And then, yeah, I I, I hear what you're saying, but I I prefer the terms uh, entrepreneur. Sure. I'm less, I'm less influencing. And I think more so I'm just trying to connect the dots. Yeah. You know, well, I think that's become a dr- it's, it's become a dirty word, but that's what it, you know, in a lot of respects is. Right? <laughs> yeah, it did become because, a dirty word. <laughs> because nobody wants to be associated with that because I think there's a connotation there. But what that is is someone who has some kind of notoriety or an audience or is recognized as a specialist in a in a certain area and yeah. then just kind of using that as leverage to help you know, elevate a brand or a person or something, but yeah, absolutely. absolutely. The, term, the term entrepreneur is so much more preferable there. <laughs> as far as, as far as Vietnamese food goes, are there any Michelin rated Vietnamese restaurants, at least in America? Like, and if not, like, could there be a three-star Vietnamese restaurant? I think I'm speculating on how Michelin works. I'm not exactly sure. Right. But I'm speculating if there were, be a three-star Michelin restaurant that were a Vietnamese themed, I would imagine it would need to start in Vietnam first to get the full round experience. It would just make sense in terms of like accessibility of ingredients and full experience. Like, for example, I think a restaurant is dubbed with three Michelin stars if it's a restaurant that attracts people from other countries to go to your country. And respectfully, with thoughts, that sort of understanding about Michelin, like very limited understanding about Michelin, I think that'd be very, not impossible, but very difficult to do in a place like the United States. It would just make more sense, you know, because three Michelin star restaurants, it's like going into like, you're going on an adventure. (laughs) You know, you go to French Laundry in Napa, you are going to the the culinary institution that defines the Yonville Napa region, period, right? You're going to the pinnacle place that defined the Mediterranean gastronomy-wise in Spain, you know? Um, and I would feel the same way for a Vietnamese restaurant or a Vietnamese institution, if you will, um, that were three Michelin star rated. Um, I do know of, I believe he's a Bib Gourmand. 
Bib Gourmand, I think, is um, a recommendation from Michelin. It will never qualify for one, two, or three star because of its price point. I think, yeah, I think like, they call them like exceptional value or something like that. Is, is yeah, exceptional value. There is a Bib Gourmand named Hai Su um, in Chicago, and I've heard nothing but amazing and high praises of that um, Vietnamese establishment. And I guess not just even the level of Michelin, but I haven't seen a lot of like formal dining Vietnamese restaurants. You know, I, I don't even yeah. usually eat in them that often. I do takeout. Like I think of takeout all the time or it's a place I go with my family, but where those white tablecloth Vietnamese restaurants? I think once again, I think it will come, but I think it'll come later. Obviously post pandemic, but I think um, if you notice all of the three Michelin star restaurants that exist around the world, they all exist in fairly strong economies that have a strong reflection of tourism. So like Japan, Hong Kong, Italy, France, Spain, United States, South America, and Mexico, their tourism is cranking up. So they've had their first three-star, I think, like two, three years ago. Yeah, I mean, you look, you look at places like Pujol. I don't know if Pujol is a two- or three-star, but, you know, um, down in Mexico, like they're, you know, formal kind of fine dining Mexican That's food. And, and Mexican food isn't something that a lot of people, especially in the U.S., thought of as being fine dining a number of years ago. And then, you know, Enrique, Enrique comes over here and opens up a couple of restaurants in New York, and then it kind of starts to grow and it's elevating Mexican cuisine. And I wonder, like, could Vietnamese food get there? You know, you're seeing it with some upscale Indian restaurants and, and such. And I still kind yeah. of see more like mom and pop, very small Vietnamese type restaurants. And I think there's something to address as well, too. I feel like Michelin is very patriarchal. And um, I, I think that comes with very, that comes with some sort of like um, gender restrictions. And I think the truth of the matter is, I think if you look at the world, there's women chefs, men, period, 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 period. I'm talking about professional chefs, period. However, in this historic, in the historical context as well too. However, um, Michelin, um, has a reputation of awarding the majority of chefs, male chefs, uh, Michelin stars and Michelin awards. And I think there's a good and bad in Michelin. I think Michelin is a double-edged sword. And, you know, if you get it, now you have to stress about maintaining it, right? I think the other context is that with this new generation of kids, call it, was it Generation Z? Do they want to be chefs the same way we want to be chefs? I'm not sure that I don't I don't know if I don't know if that's going to exist, you know, and I think Michelin started doing the hard pivot to street food because chefs like you and myself, that sort of training that we went through, that sort of brigade system that we went through. I don't I don't know if that's going to exist anymore. Yeah, I'm not interested in that food. I mean, there's great Michelin restaurants. Of course, the French Laundry is an amazing place. But like when I go to a city now, like I'm more interested if I'm going to Michelin, like a one star or a two star, like it's it's got a cool vibe. Like I'd rather go in a place where the food is banging, but like you maybe got some old school hip hop on the radio and it just has more of a laid back vibe and you can get a bunch of interesting stuff. I'm not interested in a 20 course, $300 menu that takes four hours. Like I'm just not interested in that anymore. And I think in terms of like where the economy is going, uh, I, I don't see those type of restaurants, those sort of models thrive post-2020 and post-2021. 
I mean, look at Al Bully, like they could have stayed on, but they didn't. And he, he, he pivoted to a research institution because you know why? Now he can do all his R&D he wants and then he can sell his information, you know, opposed to worrying about covers and seats and accolades and all that stuff. Yeah. You know? Most of those places, like you said, you travel for, you know, I think there's definitely already been a return to the neighborhood restaurant. Like, what do you do if your restaurant is so dependent on people traveling, whether it be regionally or internationally to your restaurant? Now, people aren't getting on planes. They're not traveling. You know, I'm not going to San Francisco to go to a restaurant anymore. I'm only going super locally. So if you're one of those restaurants, you have to figure a way to make it work for your local communities now. Um, so really quickly, like you were on Top Chef. How was that experience? Like, would you do that again if they wanted you to come back for like an all-stars or do something? Was it an overall positive experience for you? Absolutely. I think Top Chef changed my life. I think it helped grow my brand. It helped share my story um, across a lot of different mediums. And uh, anything on like NBC Universal or Bravo, it goes international. So I think for that, I was just super happy to be on the show. Um, if they would ask me to do the show again, I would absolutely do it again. I think it was absolutely fun. They took care of us in a sense where uh, all the staff members, they kept us in a penthouse. You know, the food was always stocked and sponsored by Whole Foods. So like whatever we wanted, we just say, hey, I want I want a 40 or, you know, some salami or <laughs> whatever it is that they'll always get it for us. So I think in terms of the situation, in terms of like our living conditions was amazing. Um, in terms of like the competition and the environment, um, is for me, I, I don't cook like that. It's really hard to wrap my head around to cook like that. And it takes a very specific skill. Um, but after be going through it once, um, I had an, I have an understanding of, of how those things sort of work and then refocusing my energy. And I, I just tell you this, like there's a lot of chefs in there that have a lot of Michelin training that fail in the top chef contest because it's a completely different game. You know, you're making a dish like in 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, like, that's crazy. If, I were, if I were to do that in a fine dining restaurant or any of the establishments that I could, my chef would kick my ass. And, with no, and even, with no help, like what environment are you doing food like that literally by yourself? You're used to coming from your restaurants with like a whole team of people with you. Well, I think the other thing is not just that, but the, I think the other thing to consider is that. And, and this is this this is the oxymoron for me is that a 15-hour braised piece of oxtail versus one at, one done in 10 minutes, which one sounds more delicious to you? Which one do you think is going to taste better? I've never seen a 10-minute oxtail on a menu anywhere. You know, right? Like, so, but it's not, that, it's, not that, it's not that it's impossible. It's just you have to learn a bunch of these tips, secrets, and break all of these rules to figure out how to do it. You know what I mean? And just in my experiences... I had to break a lot of all my own rules that I've established in my own kitchens and the ones that I've inherited from, from my chefs or whatnot to make it work, you know? Yeah. I'm sure there's stuff that goes in the fryer that you would never fry on a normal basis. Like you see the fryer come out. It's like, up, oh, this isn't done. Throw it in there. Give it a, give it another 30 seconds in the fryer. Yeah. And I, I think if you watch the show, I had a lot of camaraderie with everyone. And I think, but that's just the way I am in the kitchen is that, you know, when somebody else goes down, you help out, you know, and like you offer. And I think in a competition like that, I was thinking like Rocky and Apollo is that I want to beat you at your best. <laughs> I, I don't want to, I don't, you know, I don't want you to fail over a technicality. I think the, the, the complexes of personalities and competitiveness goes on uh, and comes out later in the show, you know. 
Yeah, it's always hard when like the time runs out and someone forgot to put something on there. It's like, you're literally not going to let them pick that, you know, piece of chicken off the cutting board and put it on the plate. You're going to make them serve the judges with no protein. Come on. That's got to be <laughs> hard. That, but that's but that's the thing about the show. That's that's what gets people glued to the TV set, you know. So I, I think it's in all reason, I just try to remind people that come on people it's it's tv it's drama tv <laughs> yeah. yeah that's what keeps us keeps us on the edge of our seats and they always know when to go right to commercial just to keep coming back <laughs> i think our season was the one where they started implementing slow-mo i thought it was the stupidest thing ever but you know <laughs> was it hard watching yourself like do you do you like that like would you watch the shows and how do you feel when you see yourself on tv you know when it first aired i watched it for a little bit um however uh, it makes me feel weird watching myself. You know, it's kind of like, I feel like that's such like a Kanye West thing. You know, like, yeah. like Kanye West would make a, a music album and he would sit in his car and listen to it really loud and bobbing his head. You know, it's like, that's my album. My, my album is great. I don't have that type of personality where I would watch myself and I'd be like, yeah. You know? <laughs> well, it's even weird having the podcast because the amount of times I listen to a show, cause I do all my own editing. It's like, I have to listen to it. You're like, do I really sound like that? Do I really say that stuff all the time? And then I hit publish. And like the morning it comes out, when I go for my morning walk or run, I'm listening to it to see how it actually sounds on the internet, like everyone yeah. else. And you're like, this is weird. Like, I don't know. I've listened to so many times. So I want to listen to this, this episode for another hour again. And do I really sound like that? You know, it's just it's, it's <laughs> funny. It's a, it's a weird thing. And I'm still not quite used to that yet. I do the same thing because I, I edit my cooking classes. And I upload them. I upload them so people can stream it. Um, but yeah, it's like, there's the, I'm pretty sure you do this with audio too, but there's a part where you have to cut out. And you're listening to the same sentence that you said or same phrase you said like 20 times. Like, this is up. This is a, this is a. <laughs> yeah, no, no, definitely you do. And sometimes you have to have a conversation. Like I have to say something to get you to tell a story, but then I have to edit out what I said to get you there, you know? So the flow is a little better. So sometimes there's like a leading question and then yeah. you get really deep and it's like, and then I'll just, you know, it's really hard to interview people on the fly. Like my response will come off kind of nonchalant. Like you'll talk about this very deep thing about, you know, your parents and, and whatever. And I'll say, yeah. And then I'll transition to the next question, almost like I'm blowing it off. And then you listen, it's like, wow, that sounded really shallow. Like you just share this really deep emotional <laughs> story about something. And I'm like, yeah. So anyway, tell me about your pho recipe. You know? <laughs> so you have to kind of think about how that sounds when you put it together. Because again, like I'm having fun with this, but I never set out to be like a, a podcaster or media company. Like I'm just learning on the fly and making it up as I go. I think uh, I think you'd be deemed for me as a person who helps tell stories, you know. And I think the work that you're doing is um, you are a, a journalist of the 2000s. You know, well, I think all stories. Are, I think all stories are important to hear, and you're helping sharing that. Like this is the new format of what Twitter was in the early 2000s. And whether whether you were an accredited journalist or not on Twitter, if you were sharing world news and things that people wanted to say and talk about when they didn't have a platform to say it, like. I think that is uh, the impact that you can have. Just saying. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And to all our listeners, as always, this has been the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. You can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com.org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great week. 
Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.